you know, one thing that drove the prophets was jealousy for the glory of God, which meant they would always expose idolatry. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thoroughly Jewish Thursday, but our phone lines are open for any call of any kind today because we didn't take a single call yesterday. There was so much to cover on Inauguration Day. So we'll, of course, start with Jewish-related calls, but phone lines are open, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884 is the number to call. Did you get my emails, by the way? Do you hear from me, for example, when we're doing a special live stream like we did last night on Facebook? or here's a synopsis of, of the, the new articles for the week, or here are the new videos that we put out, or special resource offer we have, or free material we have. Do you get our emails? Well, if not, take a minute, go to askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org, and sign up, and uh, you'll get a, a free mini-book, Seven Secrets of the Real Messiah, an e-book that'll be a real good read, a real eye-opener. And then uh, for the next few days, you'll, you'll hear more about my testimony, about our ministry background. I think you'll be really interested in that. So go to the website, askdrbrown, askdrbrown.org. Before I take any calls today, I want to focus on a central issue of the prophets. When you read the prophetic books in the Hebrew Bible, there is a tremendous jealousy for the glory of God a tremendous jealousy for the reputation of the Lord, a tremendous jealousy for who he is, and, and therefore there is a tremendous passion to expose idolatry and to come against idols. And the prophets often spoke with tremendous emotion because they felt the burden of the Lord. And God's heart is passionate. There are some who, theologians who speak about God being impassable, not impossible, but impassable, the impassibility of God, which means that what we think of as emotions, anger, joy, those types of things, that God does not actually experience those because if he experienced those, that he would be changing. Rather, he is always exactly the same in what we would call his emotional life, again, using human terms to speak of God that he is, he is always emotionally the same, but that he uses these terms like love and hate or anger or joy or grief, that he uses those for our understanding. I, I don't read the Bible like that. I don't relate to God like that. I don't believe these are just terms. We are created in his image, and he, in terms of his essential nature, never changes, but there are times when he is grieved. There are times when he is angry. There are times when he is joyful, and, and he may experience many things, I'm sure he does, simultaneously. And again, he is not emotional. Every one of these things we speak of are absolutely, utterly perfect in him. But the prophets like Jeremiah would talk, for example, in the second chapter of the book, as, as if God was married to Israel, which spiritually he was, and Israel went out after other lovers. Israel went out and committed adultery. 
So God cares for Ezekiel 16, a very passionate picture there with God raising Israel just from being a little child, little girl, baby girl, just left to die and raises her. And then she becomes old enough and now God is going to join together with her. But she goes out and commits adultery. This is the imagery of idolatry. And there was just like a husband, every, every husband deeply in love with your wife, the thought of her committing adultery is, is, is unbearable. The, the jealousy, the anger that you'd feel, the hurt, the betrayal, all of that going on. God uses that image of Israel's idolatry is, is an adulterous act, and therefore the images are mixed together about Israel sinning sexually often means Israel committing spiritual adultery and following idols. And the prophets, to this day, those with a prophetic heart, are burdened, burdened for the glory of God, burdened with a holy jealousy for who he is. And when his people go and follow idols and worship idols, it, it burns within him, and, and it is now looking to those that cannot help, looking away from the one and only God who can help, and looking instead to worthless idols. Take a look with me in Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah chapter 10. And, and this, is, this is written, again, about people putting their trust in idols. So it starts off, hear the word which the Lord has spoken to you, O house of Israel. Now he's warning them, don't follow the nations because the nations worship idols. Koamar Adonai, this is what the Lord has said. Thus said the Lord, do not learn to go the way of the nations and do not be dismayed by poor tents in the sky. Let the nations be dismayed by them. Ki amim hevelhu. For the laws of the nations are delusions. For it is the work of a craftsman hand. He cuts down a tree in the forest with an axe. He adorns it with gold and silver. He fastens it with nails and hammer so that it does not totter. By the way, this, people quote this about Christmas trees. It's not about a Christmas tree. Okay, this is about trees making them into, taking wood and making it into idols. All right. Uh, they are like a scarecrow and a cucumber catch. They ca- patch. They cannot speak. They have to be carried for they cannot walk. Be not afraid of them for they can do no harm nor is it in them to do any good. All right, let's pause there for a moment. I was in India, one of my early trips there in the mid-1990s, and I was out in a small village preaching, and I, I was talking to the people about worshiping the unseen God, the eternal God, the God who created everything. And I, I went over to a tree, and I kicked the tree, and I said, it's just a tree. I kicked the tree, it doesn't say anything, I didn't hurt the tree, it can't retaliate. I said, so please explain this. And I was using some of the imagery that's found in the book of Isaiah. And I said, so if, if I now cut a piece of wood out of here and carve it, now I'm gonna bow down to it? And they, all, they were smiling and laughing, getting the point. But in their minds, they weren't worshiping a piece of wood. In other words, that's the, the way the prophets would speak it to expose it. But in their mind, no, it's not a piece of wood. It represents a deity. Or, or the moment I said it, the part of this now empowered by that deity. In other words, idolatry can be very subtle. It seems so obvious from the outside. What are you doing? Why are you bowing down in front of that statue? It's like, well, no, it's not a statue. The statue represents the God that I'm worshiping or the God that I'm praying to. Or the statue just represents a manifestation of the deity, but the deity itself is hidden in but the prophets spoke about it as if they were bowing down to the work of, of their own hands because that's what they were actually doing. 
All right, so go back to Jeremiah, the 10th chapter. So he now, Jeremiah now begins to praise the Lord. Oh Lord, there's none like you, Gadol Atah. You are great for Gadol Shimcha Bigvura, and your name is great in power. Who would not revere you, O king of the nations? For that is your due, since among all the wise of the nations and among all their royalty, there is none like you. But they are both dull and foolish. Their doctrine is but delusion. It is a piece of wood, silver beaten flat, that is bought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz, the work of a craftsman, the goldsmith's hands. The clothing is blue and purple. All of them are the work of skillmen. You, you dress the thing up and, oh, it's, it's just, it's, it's made by people. You can't worship that which you make. But the Lord is truly God. He is a living God, the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes and nations cannot endure his rage. And then a fascinating verse in the book of Jeremiah. Book of Jeremiah from the first verse to the last verse first verse of chapter 1 to the last verse of chapter 52, it's all written in Hebrew, except for this one verse, verse 11, which is written in Aramaic. Why? Thus shall you say to them that the gods who did not make heaven and earth perish from the earth and from under these heavens, or the gods who did not make heaven and earth will perish from the earth and from under these heavens. And then it goes on to say it's only the Lord who made heaven and earth. Okay, so put the text away for now and ask the question, why is that verse in Aramaic? It's in Aramaic because that was what you call the lingua franca, the, the most common language that was used in the, in the ancient Mideast. Just like today, the, the most common language used is Arabic. Of course, Hebrew now largely used, but massively more Arabic used in that region. Well, in those days, it was Aramaic. If you wanted to speak a language that everybody could understand, you'd speak Aramaic. Just like if you're looking for one language that m most people would be able to speak in terms of widespread different backgrounds, it's, it's American English. You find more people speaking that. So this is spoken in Aramaic because Jeremiah is bringing a word to the nations. Nations, hear this. The gods you worship are going to perish. And then there's only one true God telling Israel, don't follow the ways of the nations. Now, let me illustrate something for you politically as we're in Inauguration Week. When Donald Trump was president, I was looking to him to do certain things. I was hoping he would pass certain legislation. I was hoping he would take certain stands with appointing justices to the courts. I was hoping that he would do what he could as president to push back against certain things that were wrong in our country and to advocate for things that were right. Not putting my trust in a man, but looking to him to do certain things as president because I knew that, that he advocated for certain things that I thought were important in, in terms of certain policies and things like that. So when it was time to nom nominate Supreme Court justices and, and, and most recently Amy Coney Barrett to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I was hoping he would nominate her because I thought she would be a fine justice and in particular a strong pro-life justice. And obviously that's something very dear to God's heart. Now Joe Biden is, is in office. And in terms of pro-life issues, he's going to be on the other side. In terms of transgender activism, he's going to be on the other side. 
in terms of other issues where he falls with Israel and things we shall see. But I, I'm not looking to him to do any of these things. I, I'm praying for him, and I will, I will stand against what I believe is wrong, just like with Donald Trump. He was, he's a human being, so it's going to be good and bad. Same with Joe Biden, good and bad. But, but I have this sense of, okay, I can't look to a man to do this. I just have to look to God. And there's a very subtle thing where we look to other people, other things, other entities, even a, you know, taking out a loan when we're trusting God for something that doesn't come through. It's often easy for us to put our trust in someone else, something else other than God alone. And when we do it in a way where we put all our eggs in their basket, that's when it becomes idolatrous. So it's an interesting thing. It can be subtle, but then it can be very dangerous. All right, we'll be back. Take your calls and much more. Give us strength to always do what's right. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. fingers the moon and the stars which you Michael Brown delighted to be with you before I go to the calls I, I wrote a very very important article calling for prophetic accountability I wrote it with a tremendous burden I actually wrote it last week January 14th and I waited of course until today to release it so it was the day after inauguration and then i incorporated an anecdote from from yesterday into the article but otherwise the article itself i wrote a a week ago Uh, i wrote it under tremendous burden uh, really gripped with a call for prophetic accountability especially for those that want to keep pushing the narrative no 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 wait 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 and see wait and see no no you don't know what's going to happen no there's still time well no it's going to be a few months and it's really an urgent word. It's very, very important. Please read it and share it widely. It's on my website, askdrbrown.org. It's up on stream.org. It will be on other websites as well. A strong appeal to those who prophesied Trump's re-election. You know, and, and some people were, were looking to Trump's re-election the same way they looked to Christ's resurrection. In other words, against all hope, it's going to happen and watch and watch and watch. And of course, it didn't happen. And many of us knew for some time it wasn't going to happen. And what I find very painful now for the body, because I'm concerned about the sheep, and I'm concerned about the Lord's reputation, what I find very painful is that, number one, there are many people who say, well, don't, don't say a word. till the, Wait till the 20th. Just wait till the 20th, and let's see what happens. Okay, so we wait till the 20th. The 20th comes and goes. You know what they're saying now? Don't, I, I don't want to hear from you. You've got nothing to say to me. It's like, well, well, hang on. You said wait till the 20th, and then the 20th. Many people saying, Brown, you're going to have to do a lot of apolo- apologizing. One guy said to me, when Trump is inaugurated on the 20th, will you get out of ministry for a year and go on a, a, you know, an apology tour? I said, you bet. You bet, because I knew for a fact it was not going to happen. There was no ambiguity or question in that. So I waited for the 20th and then said, hey, let's move on now. The conspiracies... This is a theory. It's not true. It's not true. There was never going to be a military coup. There was, there, the military was not waiting to arrest Biden and Pence. There, there's not a secret plan with the president to, 
to come into office. And I'm not gloating. I'm, I'm saying this out of love. It was never true. I'm reading articles now from followers of QAnon saying we all got played. Yes. Yes. The thing was false. Rather than kick, well, you can kick yourself. Sometimes it's, how, it's healthy to kick yourself. How did I get so deceived? I should have known better. And then retrace your steps. Find out. Those of you who are still listening to prophetic voices saying it's not over and something's going to happen, I assure you, I guarantee you in the sight of God, you are listening to deceptive words. I'm not talking about whether Trump can run it for office in 2024. So that's a whole separate story. We're talking about this presidency, this inauguration, this re-election, the two consecutive terms that were prophesied, the people like Kat Kerr saying there'll be eight straight years, then after that, eight years of Mike Pence. We shall see what happens with Mike Pence in the future. May God bless him. But if you are still holding on to that, you are denying reality and listening to false words. I beg of you, step back. Let, let the, you know, you, you throw cold water on your face. Do that spiritually, so to say, to, to step back, spend quality time with God in his word. People say, oh, my spirit's telling me. Well, you're, you're, you, we're human beings. We're human beings. We can have impressions and thoughts and feelings that are not God. Look, it, it's just like you're praying for a relative. We've all done this. Most all of us, someone close to us, someone that we love, and they're, they're terribly sick, and we pray, and we pray, and we pray, and we really, they're, they're going to be healed. I just know what they're going to be. Because we want, we want them to be healed. We love them. They're family members. And then they die, and maybe you think, well, maybe they'll be raised from the dead. Okay, well, that was two years ago. They're not getting out of that grave. When Yeshua returns, they'll get out of the grave. All right? But they're, it's not going to happen. I know. It's, it's, no, it, that's just what you want, what you desire. Understand it. We've all been through that. I remember after my dad died suddenly of a heart attack in, in 1977, he was 63 years old, when he died suddenly of a heart attack, and, and I'd have a dream, and he was alive in the dream, and I'd be saying, Dad, I love you. Now, he knew I loved him, but I didn't get to tell him I loved him right before he died because I didn't know he was about to die. And in the dream, it was so real, but then you wake up, it's like, oh, he's gone. So this is not the end of the world. This is not the end of the world. Let's be people of faith. If you could have so much faith to believe that against all odds, on January 20th, Trump was still going to be inaugurated, and you were holding on to that on January 19th, turn that faith into prayer that God will work in the midst of a Biden-Harris presidency where many of their goals are going to be different than ours, and many of their values are going to be different than ours, and things could be very destructive. And my hope is not in the Republican Party or the Democrat Party. My hope is in God. But friends, let's exercise faith. Let's not be wimps carrying in fear. Let's move forward. Let's move forward. But please, I beg of you, move forward. Don't, don't look for another post from QAnon and, oh, it's this. It, no. It's over. It was never going to happen. Let's move on. I beg of you. All right, to the phones. And uh, we'll, we'll stay on this for a moment. Let's go to Ida in Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, how you doing? Doing well, thank you. Okay. The first question you answered for me uh, a couple minutes ago. <laughs> My second question is, okay, I was the little girl. I always, I, I always tell my mom, okay, I'm from another place. I always say that to her, and 
and she said, oh, she never, you know, that uh, was never attention to me. You know what I mean? You understand my English? I miss something. What, what was it that you would say to your mother? I was in my heart. I was from Israel. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And she she said, "No, you 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 Puerto Rican. Don't 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 get attention for that." <laughs> and we are getting older. Uh, two years ago, I did in my ADN, mm-hmm. and I got from there, from Israel. And my heart always tell me that I'm supposed to belong there. Yeah, yeah. So so here's something very interesting, Ida. There are... And this is right now. I tell you that, and my body start getting chill. Yeah, yeah. So, so Ida, it's really and my interesting. Ma- it, it, yeah. it, it comes from, me, from yeah. my mother's side. Yeah. So, so here's what's really interesting, Ida, that uh, many people of Hispanic descent do have Jewish blood, and what what happened centuries ago was that Jews under duress and pressure converted to Catholicism. It happened in Spain, happened in Portugal, but, but, but um, many that would be in, in Latin America today would have those roots. Under duress, they converted. Some secretly continued to practice Judaism. Others knew of their Jewish heritage and, and married within other Jewish families, but were outwardly Catholic and lost a lot of contact with their Jewish roots. But I've heard of many, many in, in South America and Central America, many, many, and met, met them in America as well, those of Hispanic background, and they'd say, we don't know why, but we were drawn as Christians to the Seventh-day Sabbath, and we were drawn to the biblical calendar, and then we checked our roots and found out that, that our ancestors were what would be called Moranos, so they were called pigs because they were looked at as second-class citizens by, by their fellow Catholics, but they were actually conversos. They, they were forced converts, so they, they did have Jewish descent. So this is something that is as wonderful as the follower of Yeshua because it does connect you in that way as well with the people of Israel. It doesn't make us higher or lower or better or worse. We are one in the Messiah. But it's fascinating to say, hey, you, you have the same bloodline or a connection there uh, to the, the very disciples himself or, or Yeshua through, through his mother. So it's an interesting thing. If God ultimately wants you in Israel, he'll, he'll open that door. Uh, in order to get there, the descent would have to be very recent. In other words, you'd have to be able to prove that your mother was Jewish uh, to, to be accepted in Israel as a citizen. But yeah, it's an interesting thing. The key is you want to keep your eyes focused on Jesus, Yeshua. He's central. He's the, the one uh, that, that has died for your sins and risen from the dead. And now explore, Lord, what does this mean? What does this mean that this is part of my heritage? Hey, thank you for the call. 866-34-TRUTH. All right. We're going to go to our friend Manny from Brooklyn next, but we've got a break coming up, so I don't want to start the conversation now and not be able to keep it. I want to give a recommendation to those who got off track, to those who put your hope really deeply in the Trump prophecies, to those who believe some of the QAnon conspiracy, and and some still are. I I posted on Facebook earlier just urging people, 
time to move on. Not gloating, not I told you so, no, God forbid, but say, hey, please, please, it's time to move on. It's time to move on. People are saying, no, 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 I'm still believing. I sense in my heart I should still believe her. No, no, it's you and on. There's a lot of truth, and, and you watch and see. I, I, I can only ask you to ask God, get on your face and say, God, I just want truth. I just want truth. Help me to embrace truth. And then as you go through your own awakening of, oh, my God, how did I get so deceived and so off or put my trust in people or believe these crazy sources? It's painful, but it'll be the experience and lesson of a lifetime. This could be the key to keep you from worse deception in the future. All right, straight your calls when we come back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to 31st Thursday on The Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown. Delighted to be with you, 866 866- Three, four, truths. We go back to our friend Manny in Brooklyn. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Hey, so how are folks doing in your community now that uh, Trump, for whom many voted, uh, is out? Hi, hi. We're almost having Tish above. Ah, okay, so for those that don't know, time of, of mourning. So there's, there's concern about where the Biden administration will go? Well, there is some concern. I spoke to someone in my uh, yeshiva who is actually pretty pro-Biden, which is interesting. We we go back and forth once in a while. Yeah, uh, we debate a bit. But yeah, but uh, it well, will be what it will be. I mean, you know. yeah. If you get in the more secular community, obviously the the Jewish community then would be much more pro-Biden, and in the more religious community, would be more right. pro-Trump. Yeah. So, uh, what do you want to talk about today? Um, last time we spoke on theology, I think we we were talking about. Uh, Haggai, the second chapter, and uh, you felt that I needed to read uh, your book, uh, you know, um, an- Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, Volume 1, and see see some some of the argument a little bit better. Mm-hmm. So, um, also, we, we had this conversation beforehand, so I, you ended off the conversation with a quote. I'm going to quote it to you, but... Uh, now, I, I, I just am a little confused about it, so maybe you could clarify this point. Uh, you said at the end of the conversation, remember, a quote, remember this is a very sp- specific time frame. It's the time of the dedication of the temple, right? What happened when Solomon de- dedicated his, te- his temple? The words filled with glory were used. Very specific. When Moses dedicated the tabernacle, filled with glory. What happened? Something very specific. So are you saying that Haggai the second chapter is talking about the dedication of the temple? No, I'm talking about the language. Yeah, thanks for asking that. In other words, when you have temple imagery, right, and, and the context of the dedication of the temple, and you have filled with glory that exact same phrase used in Exodus 40, and that exact same mm-hmm. phrase used in Second Chronicles 5, both of which talk about the manifest presence of God 
filling either the tabernacle or the temple to the point that Moses or the priest could not minister in it, then you have that exact same phrase used there, and the Talmudic rabbis recognized that that did not happen with the dedication of the temple, then how could God say that the glory would be greater and that he would fill that place with glory? Obviously, a future word of what he would do, right? We both agree the fulfillment is future, right? Just like you're saying it referred to Herod beautifying the temple, and I'm saying it referred to more than that. But how could that imagery of filled with glory in association with the dedication of the temple means something totally different and just material compared to the previous times when this is the, the, the house of God. So that was the, yeah, no. the nature of the argument. Yeah. Yeah, but, but my question is, are you claiming that Haggai, the second chapter, is the time of the dedication of the temple? No, it's, no, no, it's, it's just speaking uh, okay. of that. No, no, uh, right. It's, it's speaking of saying, hey, look at it, and, and, and God's saying, but I'm going to fill it with glory. Right. Okay, fine, fine. And uh, when Jesus came to the temple, there was no real dedication there, correct? Right, right. In other words, okay. God's saying in the future, yeah, thanks for getting clarification on that, and, and yeah. sorry if I wasn't perfectly clear on it. So, yeah, the, the point is we both agree that there's silver and gold involved in physical beautification. Right. You mm-hmm. Look at it, right? We, we fully agree. My argument is if God says I'm going to fill it with glory, since that exact same phrase has been used twice previously, Exodus mm-hmm. 40, 2 Chronicles 5, both regarding mm-hmm. God's manifest presence in the temple. How could it now in the future, and when the glory is going to be greater than that of Solomon's temple, purely be material, silver and gold? Right. And then I said right. that's, it's interesting that if you look at the Mepharshim, the rabbinic commentators, there's debate about it. What does it mean? And they by no means universally say that it, it's it's the physical beautification. So it was so obvious you'd think that that would have been seen. Okay, so regarding the uh, other passages which you mentioned, um, Exodus chapter 40, or I, I think in one video you mentioned that uh, someone should just do a search, fill with glory in, mm-hmm. in the Old Testament, and you'll find the terms always apply to God's presence. It doesn't just say the word kavod there, it says kavod Hashem, or it says, Kvaidai, referring to God, His glory, or Kvaidi, my glory. There's always an extra word there to, to signify whose glory it is. And when we look inside Haggai, Haggai doesn't make any mention of Kvaidi, or Kvaidai, or Kvaid Hashem. So maybe we should reckon, maybe these are different types of Kavod. And, and the way we know it is, because you see the other terms, are actually used differently. Right, so that's, that's an argument you could give. And so you agree that when it says fill with glory, that it has a specific meaning elsewhere. Well, yeah, but because it says what type of glory it oh, is. Okay, fine, fine. But in, in other words, right, right. But in other words, that phrase fill with glory does not occur in all other types of contexts, right? Where God says, I will, I will fill with glory, that doesn't occur in other contexts. That, that's all I'm saying. I'm not, I'm not pushing back against your point. I'm simply saying you agree with me that when you search for that in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew Bible, that it doesn't occur all over the place, and it's a common, you know, it could just mean be rich or this or that. It's, so your thing would be, yeah, but whose glory or what kind of glory? That's a, that's a fair question to ask. The question would be, in the mind of an Israelite who has seen the glory of God in the temple, because remember, this is God's house, and he mm-hmm. says the glory is going to be greater, and I'm going to fill it with glory. Could you simply have a material interpretation? No, it doesn't say... Well, my glory, right? That's a counter-argument that counter-missionaries have used as we've gone back and forth. 
But as an Israelite, was that satisfactory? That, okay, it's beautiful, but where is the presence of God? Where, where is the thing that, very, that marked it as the house of God in the past? Okay. Well, well certainly, you do admit that at least the opinion of, you know, glorifying the, the temple was, is, is definitely an a, a interpretation of this passage based on the context. And in your book, you also reiterate in a footnote, same thing, right? So it's not, it's not like there's necessarily a strong difficulty that we need this interpretation. We don't really, it's not a necessity. It might be true, it might not be true. So I, I really would argue the burden of proof relies on you, and if there's a reasonable doubt to it, what does it prove? Right, so that's why this is part of a threefold argument that I've used with Malachi 3 and Daniel 9. Mm-hmm. In other words, right. Haggai 2 raises to me a legitimate question, then when I look in the Talmudic discussion and it references all the things that were lacking from the Second mm-hmm. Temple, you know, it, it, w- it would be like having a, a synagogue and you've got, you've got the Ark in the front but no Torah scroll. And you say this synagogue is going to be holier than any synagogue we've had and more beautiful. And you have all this, you know, it's beautifully painted and all, the, you know, gold floors, but there's no Torah scroll. It's like, excuse me, something central is missing. Uh, but no, I, I do not say that Haggai 2 is an indisputable prophecy that no right. one could possibly push back against, but rather part of a threefold argument. Okay. And Fearful. then when I, it, when I look at the rabbinic commentaries, I see that it's not so simple to them either. They're debating it. Okay. Yeah, so, so that's, so that's a, very rabbinic... fair, a very fair observation, and I don't, I don't argue about that. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about the, the rabbinic commentaries, I assume you're, you're not just talking about the Talmud now. You're talking about perhaps the Matsudos or uh, the Malbim, which say that it might refer to the Third Temple. Right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, just for example, of course, I've got Mikrokodolo in, in my, my library, uh, just next office across from here. Uh, but now just with the Svaria website, you can go to svaria.org, right, and just click on the passage, and you've got everyone who's commented on it. And, yeah, there's the debate. No, it's longer in duration. No, it was more beautiful. No, it's Third Temple. So, again, if, it was, if your interpretation was so self-evident and indisputable, then everyone would agree with it and see it, whereas it could be, and certainly is part of it. Right, so in, in all fairness, look, we've, we've talked a few times, and you know that, that I'm seeking to be as fair and honest as you are. This, to me, is part of a threefold argument in itself, yeah. certainly not decisive, but mm-hmm. in the larger picture raises a significant question, which I believe is answered by the Messiah's coming to the temple by the glory of God being uh, poured out in the Spirit at, at Shavuot after his resurrection. And that's where I'd leave it. You know, it's, it's a piece of the puzzle. I hear. Um, do you think we have time to get into Daniel 9 today? Or, or should uh, we you know, now, now, I've got I've got to be fair to other calls. To be totally candid, I try to, uh, because I love our discussion, and I think it's very helpful for others as well, because we can obviously talk privately. But I think it's helpful for others to hear us process this together as two uh, thinking Jews that I, I do try to give extra time, but I want to be fair to other calls. So God willing, sure. okay, we no continue problem. the discussion in the future, okay? Thanks for your time. All right, thanks for your call, Manny. All right, I'm always glad to hear from an Orthodox Jewish individual who wants to talk and have an engaging conversation. I find it very helpful, and I appreciate his sincerity. All right, let us go to uh, Anchorage, Alaska. Tommy, welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. Uh, thanks so much for uh, what you've been saying recently as a young hothead in the, in the face, so to speak. It's, 
it's good to have elders like yourself cooling us down. So thank you for that. Yeah, keep the fire um, burning, but with with wisdom, and that's what that's what we're here to help with. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Um, so my question is, Paul at the end of Romans is obviously talking about Israel and expecting that uh, the fullness of Israel will come in after the fullness of Gentiles. Yep. Um, so in that context, he is talking about Israel like they are non-Christian Jews. Mm-hmm. Right. Israel, but when we hardness, get to... in, hardness in part has happened to Israel. So Romans 11.25, right. the ones who are hardened are the ones who will be saved in Romans 11.26. So when we get to Revelation chapter 7, it talks about the 144,000, um, which I don't take as literal, but it talks about 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes that mm-hmm. are listed. And then after that, it talks about this fullness of every people, tongue, and nation. So it almost sounds like Israel in that context isn't ethnic Israel. It's God's people, meaning the church grafted in, kind of like the Yeah, I, I actually look at it. Yeah, I'm just jumping in because of a, a break coming. Tommy, I, I look at it as two separate entities. Some scholars look at it as Israel's symbolic of, of the nations as a whole. I look at it again as, as two groups that, that you have during this great time of tribulation, whether it's picturing the church age or just the end of this age, that you'll have a, a, a massive harvest of Jews and a massive harvest of Gentiles. It's, it's not so much meant to be chronological, but two things that are happening at the end of the age the 12 times 12,000 representing the fullness of Israel and then a multitude from other nations. So I look at it as two separate entities just like Romans 11, 25, 26. Revelation 7 just presented in different order there because it's not chronological. It's the Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Have you ever heard Messiah has called? classic, Sacrifice Lamb. Yeah, by Lamb. That was the name of the group. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Peter and... No, we don't. All right, let's go to Blake in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Thank you so much for uh, taking our questions today. Really appreciate it. Are you there? Oh, hello. Hello? Go, go ahead. Can you hear me? Go ahead. Oh, hey, thank you. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, so I do have a question in regards to the Old Testament law uh, mm-hmm. and thinking about politics today and um, specifically in regards to the system of theonomy. Uh, and so my question is, if the law of the Lord is perfect, pure, holy, etc., uh, to what extent should we attempt to base our governmental laws on God's governing of Israel, and how does Christ's work change the application of those laws? Right. I, I love the, the way you phrased the question. It's, it's very specific. So the, the view of theonomy would basically say that because God's law is perfect, as you say, that we should do everything we can to have a society in which that is the law of the land. So I, I categorically differ with that. I do not want a society in which adulterers are put to death, a 
a society in which an incorrigibly rebellious teenager is put to death, a society in which a sorcerer is put to death. I'm not, that is not the society we're looking for, a society in which a Sabbath breaker is put to death, just to mention a few of things for which there is death penalty. Those were given. It was perfect, and it was exactly right for its time, and it was a, a schoolmaster, a pedagogue to bring us to the Messiah in terms of the Torah. Now that we've come to the Messiah, we're no longer under that pedagogic education. It served its purpose. In fact, Paul makes direct application of the language of Deuteronomy, purge the evil from among you, which occurs repeatedly in Deuteronomy. He quotes that exact phrase in 1 Corinthians 5 and does not say you put the people to death, rather you disfellowship. So we want to learn principles from it. We want to learn principles of right and wrong. I am not looking for a society where if a man has sex with a man, that he is put to death for doing that. Obviously, we're not talking about rape and abuse of a child and implications of that. So there is a place for the death penalty. Theoretically, that can be argued. The willful shedding of innocent blood. If you take a life, you forfeit your life. We have to have a perfect legal system, though, or a legal system strong enough to guarantee that we're not putting innocent people to death. But the key thing is to learn from the principles. Our founders read widely in the law books of the day, and some of them used a lot of biblical material, but it was the principle. And, and to the extent that, say, the colonies wanted to actually have penalties, if you don't go to church on Sunday, you're flogged, that was then trying to set up a theocracy. And, and when we do that, we get in trouble. When we, when we do that, we, we end up hurting innocent people and trying to force God on them, and that will never work. So we learn principles of righteousness, and, and, and we learn from New Testament principles how things are carried out, and then we make application. And that's, that's what we do. It, it was for Israel. It was for the, a time. We are not under the Sinai Covenant. We're under a new and better covenant. And that is my short answer to a big question. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it, Dr. Brown. You are very welcome. Uh, I, I want to go to one passage Daniel, the fourth chapter. Daniel, chapter 4. And King Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind for a season, for several seasons. And what had happened was pride entered his heart. And he thought he was the one, look at this great Babylon that I built. So God humbles him, all right? And we have the biblical account of this. We don't have a full parallel account in ancient Babylonian literature. But we have this account preserved in the book of Daniel. Then he comes to his senses. So let's take a look at the end of Daniel chapter 4. He comes to his senses, and he says, beginning in verse 33, There and then my reason was restored to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. My companions and nobles sought me out. I was reestablished over the kingdom and added greatness. was given to me. So now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of heaven, all of whose works are just and whose ways are right, and who is able to humble those who behave arrogantly. All right, let's keep going down uh, in the verses that follow. So this is, this is what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, fifth chapter we get into, and, and now there's judgment on the next king. In fact, let's, um, we'll do this quickly. Let's go to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. And when Daniel interprets King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, 
he then tells him, hey, there's only one God. There's only one God. And this is the, the God that gave me wisdom and insight. So Nebuchadnezzar is humbled. God called him Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. But then he went too far in his pride, and he was dealt with by God. In, in, in the 10th chapter of Isaiah, Assyria is called the rod in God's hand, but then Assyria is full of pride and, and comes under judgment. So let's scroll down to verse 22, Daniel chapter 2. And we'll scroll down to verse 22. And it says, he reveals deep and hidden things, knows what is in the darkness, light dwells with him. In fact, go, go back up a couple of verses. Just a couple of verses. Here we go. Uh, starting in verse 20, Daniel spoke up and said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power his. He changes times and seasons, removes kings and installs kings. He gives the wise their wisdom and knowledge to those who know. So someone asked me on Facebook today, have I looked at the question, really studied the question in depth of God setting up removing kings or God having dominion? And it's something I'd studied many, many years ago, really trying to understand what is our responsibility? How much does God do? What does the devil do? How much authority does he have? What can he do? How much will God do without us? How much will he only do with us? So here's what's clear. He's God and he does what he wants. If he wants to set up one king and remove another, he does it. If, if he wants to, to raise up a heathen to do a particular thing, he's God and do whatever he wants to do. He will never contradict his nature. His sovereignty is never self-contradictory. His sovereignty is always praiseworthy. His sovereignty is always reasonable, meaning that it is in harmony with who he is. But he, as God, can do whatever he wants to do. Now, Satan has been given limited authority on this earth. Human beings have given that to him. They worship him as the God of this world. And, and Satan does certain things in terms of his own manipulation, but ultimately if God wants to overrule this or do this here in a, in a democratic republic like we have, so we cast our vote. But if God has a particular end that he wants to bring about, then he can shift things as he desires to get who he wants in a particular person, in a particular place. It could be for blessing. It could be for judgment. Four years ago when I wrote that Donald Trump was president by the sovereign will of God, I meant that it wasn't just a normal election where we vote and, and God says, hey, you get who you want for better or worse. But this is one where there seemed to be more intervention for better or worse because God had a particular purpose. There was no logical course by which Donald Trump became president, but he did. And the same way in early 2020, there was no way Joe Biden was going to be the president, but he ends up as president. I see God's sovereign hand in that for better or for worse. So there, there are the dimensions of what God does, what people do, and what Satan does. Satan even makes the claim in Luke 4 to Jesus that he puts people in power, right? And to an extent, because he's the God of this age, meaning the one that people worship and follow, so he does have certain authority that people have given him and he's involved in their affairs. But God is God. God is God. So at any moment in any time, in consistency, in, in, not inconsistent, but in consistency with his will, with his nature, he does whatever he wants to do for his sovereign purposes and doesn't have to explain himself to anyone. So a normal election, I just assume that God is saying, you vote and you get what you want because we're not uh, a kingdom with a king, okay? We, we are a democratic republic. 
So under normal circumstances, when, when George Bush came in, when Barack Obama came in, Bill Clinton before that, just in my view, we were voting and we were getting what we voted for. Whether it was good or bad, we were getting what we voted for. And God is working through all of that. Then when I see something that is more unusual, when I see something that seems to, there, there's no logical explanation for it, I think something's going on here. For example, let's say that you have two teams playing, two NBA basketball teams, both fine teams, and, and they play really well, and the better team wins most of the time. Okay. Then one day you have a team playing from elementary school. The, the kids are eight years old. They can barely bounce the ball. And they beat the best NBA team, in this case, last year, the Los Angeles Lakers. They beat the best NBA team four straight games. You're like, something, something happened there. Something happened. There's no logical explanation. I don't mean that the NBA players didn't try. They tried, and the little kids who were up to their knees beat them in every game. And then you find out that they're from this Christian school, and God promised I'm going to work a miracle to let everyone know that I'm involved in the society. It's like, that's, to me, that's God's at work. So I recognize there are many different elements, but God sets up kings, remove kings. That, that principle applies and I believe, whether it's to bless or to judge or a combination of things, that Donald Trump was raised up and that Joe Biden was raised up. And it's, it behooves us to seize the moment and be God's people and find out what he's doing and why. All right, if we didn't get your call today, we'll try to get you first tomorrow. You've got questions, we've got answers on the next broadcast here. God bless.